On Farage, we discuss the looming health crisis as we learn overnight that 50,000 dementia patients have not been diagnosed during lockdown. That is, I think, just the tip of the iceberg. We also look at the great Brexit news for wine drinkers. Yes, wine's going to get cheaper. And on Talking Pints, I'll be joined by Sir Vince Cable to see whether he's yet recovered from Brexit. So overnight we got the news, it was the front page of the Daily Mail, that 50,000 people had not been diagnosed with dementia since the start of lockdown. And that of itself would be a worrying story, but frankly, it isn't much more than the tip of the iceberg, because we've actually got nearly 300,000 fewer admissions to hospital for cancer since the start of lockdown than otherwise we would have done. Goodness knows on top of that how many other misdiagnoses there are for heart disease, diabetes and many other problems. Add to that the fact that the National Health Service is now five million operations behind uh, and waiting lists are going to be the longest they have ever been in the history of the NHS. And even getting a straightforward GP appointment, well, you can do it via Zoom, but actually... If you've got a young child that perhaps can't speak for itself, it's a very, very worrying time. And I think the truth of all of this is we have a really big, looming health crisis. By the way, I'm not blaming anybody that works as a nurse, as a doctor, or works within the NHS. That is not what I'm talking about today. What I'm talking about today is being honest and saying we are facing a massive health crisis. We are so far behind with operations and diagnoses that we simply will never, ever catch up. And yet, the response from government seems to be to say that everything is absolutely fine. We have no problems at all. Let's clap for carers. Let's clap for the NHS. Let's pretend everything is absolutely wonderful. Well, it isn't. And I'm seeing a new trend. I'm seeing it in my family. I'm seeing it amongst friends. And, and let's face it, I mean, we talk about health I think at home, more than any other subject, perhaps with the exception of money. I mean, just today, my mother has been in for a knee replacement. She went privately and paid for it. I don't think she's ever done that in the whole of her life. She's done it because the waiting list is simply too long. And I've got other friends who've sent their parents and others away to get private diagnoses or operations. And I fear, I fear that what the looming health crisis will do is to divide this country yet again between the haves and the have-nots. Those that can afford it increasingly will pay to go and get private medicine, uh, and those that can't afford it will be left to the long waiting lists of the NHS. It's something I think government seriously needs to address, to do it honestly and to do it very, very quickly. At the moment, I see no sign of that whatsoever. So let's begin today. Let's talk about dementia, and I'm pleased to be joined by Dr Karen Harrison-Denning, Head of Research at Dementia UK. Karen, good evening and welcome to GB News. Good evening, Nigel. So the news we got overnight, front page Daily Mail, is that 50,000 dementia diagnoses have been missed. Can you tell us exactly how this has happened, please? I think it comes as no surprise to people. Um, we've all been affected by having difficulty in accessing um, healthcare. GP appointments, for example, have uh, become face-to-face -face perspective, non-existent. They're, they're virtual, online telephone calls. And 
families affected by dementia have been equally affected. The problem is that undertaking a, a dementia assessment remotely is a very complex and difficult thing for which we don't have a great deal of evidence on its effectiveness. Plus also you're expecting an already disadvantaged population to adapt very rapidly to a virtual world. So you can see that there's many layers to how complex this is. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that trying to do an online diagnosis of something like this must be, well, virtually impossible, I would have thought. But can you also tell us, if a dementia case is caught early enough, can that make a difference in terms of the outcome? It can make an awful lot of difference to the whole family affected. Uh, the earlier diagnosis, the more readily accessible um, supports and interventions are available for that family. But equally as well, um, if you, if a person with dementia has access to a diagnosis and support, they, they can also uh, be much more involved in planning their future care. The problem is that if dementia diagnosis is missed or is delayed, then that, that really does disadvantage the person themselves. They may even lose capacity before they even, even have the diagnosis. So completely miss that window of opportunity to personally have an influence on their own care in the future. So in terms of improving the situation, is it a case that we just have to get back to face-to-face -face GP meetings? I think realistically we're looking at a blended approach um, and I think we have to recognise that one system doesn't suit all, nor indeed does one system suit all types of um, disease groups. And particularly when we're looking at um, increasing cognitive impairment in dementia, then we have to make every uh, resource available to ensure that that person has the best and most accurate diagnosis. I suppose what concerns me is that some things we can do virtually, some things we can do online, but some aspects of undertaking a, a dementia assessment really do need to be face-to-face -face mm. and in the person's own environment, desirably. And on the big picture, you know, care uh, surrounding areas like dementia and age, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a, a huge political debate for years. No-one yet uh, has really come up with any alternatives, any answers. Uh, give me a rough estimate. I mean, how many people in the UK would you say are suffering from dementia at this moment in time? We tend not to use the word suffering because it's politically incorrect. They don't like oh. that term. But there's, there's an estimated um, 850, 870,000 people living with a diagnosis of dementia. That's an estimate. It's likely to be more because, for example, in young onset dementia, um, the, the diagnostic processes are unusually and dreadfully pro uh, protracted because of the um, general inability to actually pinpoint and put a finger on what actually is going on. But that number is going to increase. We're an ageing population, so we're going to yeah. see more and more people with dementia. And presumably most of the care for dementia, and I won't use the word sufferers if that causes offence, I didn't know that it would, but I'm, I'm assuming that most people with dementia are being looked after by their families at home. Just roughly as a, as a, as a proportion, how many dementia patients would be still living at home? Uh, that's a bit of a movable feast. Uh, it's, the statistics uh, vary from week to month to year. 
what we do know is that there's a significant number of uh, family members, carers, supporters that surround that person with dementia. Some estimates have sort of indicated approaching 700,000, which implies that a lot of those people with dementia live alone or, or are indeed unsupported. Um, in my clinical experience, it's a lot more than that. Sometimes you can see a person with dementia surrounded by maybe three to five family members that share the care. Yeah, and are we facing a crisis in dementia care? I think we... we uh, crisis is a very strong word to use. We, we've, um, we've been aware of this for so long, but the response to um, effective and consistent and equitable care has been very slow in coming. And the National Dementia Strategy went a long way in um, developing awareness, but to morally to follow that raising of awareness, there needs to come a service offer. And that's hugely, hugely inconsistent. What, what's of concern now is um, since Brexit, we're seeing an, an absolute decline in caregiver numbers and recruitment and retention in social care sectors. I think that's going to be our next crisis. Yeah, and quite low-paid sectors too. Thank you very Absolutely. much indeed. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Well, that's dementia. And over the course of the next few weeks, we will look at all the different areas uh, where there is a real major, major problem. But one other debate that goes on day after day is, of course, that over vaccine passports. You remember the vaccine passports the government were never going to introduce, uh, and yet now we're told that actually to go to a nightclub or to go to a, a football game with more than 20,000 fans, uh, you are going to need to prove that you've been double-jabbed. Well, what does this all mean for people returning to the workplace? Because there seems to be... I mean, even, even the British Chambers of Commerce say that there is real confusion over this, but we are told that up to a third of companies are going to insist that their people have had the double jab. And, indeed, we had Charlie Mullins sitting in this studio last week from Pimlico Plumbers, and he's insisting that his staff have the double jab. Is that a fair and reasonable expectation for businesses to make of their employees? And I sense this debate, frankly, has barely begun. Now, I'm pleased to say that joining us now is businessman and founder of the 99p stores, Hussein Lalani. Hussein, good evening. Welcome to GB News. Good evening. How are you? I'm well, and I, I have to say, I do have some sympathy with the British Chambers of Commerce who just say they're confused. They're not quite sure what government guidance is. Uh, it would seem this is all being left up to individual companies. Would, would your assessment be that that's about right? I do think that's right, and I think the government's messaging throughout the pandemic has been confused, has been yeah. mixed messages. You know, we've never had a clear understanding of where we're going and they always seem to be changing their mind and, and flip-flopping at the last minute. Yeah, so, so what is a business... I mean, in, in your opinion, in your opinion, is it reasonable? And let's think about the retail sector. You know, the retail sector where you're perhaps behind a counter and you're dealing with members of the public. In a situation like that, is it reasonable that an employer should make sure that an employee has been double vaccinated? I believe, in, I believe in individual choice. I'm a strong advocate, you know, of everyone making their own, own choices. I don't believe the government should be coming down 
and insisting that, you know, businesses should make sure that their staff are vaccinated. You know, we're businesses, we're trying to make a living for ourselves and our employees, and we shouldn't be in the business of policing our staff to making sure they're vaccinated. I encourage vaccination. I've been double jabbed, and I'm yes. a strong believer everyone should get the jab, you know, if they have, uh, the, which they do have the opportunity. But no one should be forced to take a vaccine. And the other thing you've got to consider is the exceptions. You know, you've always got exceptions. There might be people who won't take a vaccine for cultural reasons, for religious re reasons, and even medical reasons. You know, if some people are on immune uh, suppressant drugs, they wouldn't be able to take a vaccine shot anyway. So now you're discriminating against this, you know, against the minority, yes, but do they deserve to be discriminated against? Well, arguably, I mean, you could be creating two types of citizen, couldn't you? And, 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 and this could apply, you know, through many areas of our life. But is it reasonable? I mean, if the government are giving a mixed message, which you're saying clearly they are, uh, and I agree with that, on, not just on this, but many other issues too, but is it right that an employer should be able to absolutely insist that all of his or her staff have had the double vaccine? Or do you think it's possible that this could be open to challenges under human rights legislation? Absolutely. The first thing that came to mind when, when, you, when you asked that question was discrimination. Mm. Mm. It is. Whether you discriminate on gender, on race, um, on age, you know, that type of discrimination should not be allowed anywhere in, in any business or in our governments. You know, we're not a state-controlled government like China who does this type of thing and um, controls their citizens like this. You know, we're in the free world and we are a, we are a democracy and we, ha you know, we have the choice. <clears throat> well, it felt like the free world, didn't it? But I, I have to say, since the pandemic began, it's begun to feel a bit less like the free world, in my view. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, where, where government is very, very good at taking powers during an emergency, but appears to be somewhat reluctant uh, to, to, to give those powers back. Can I just ask you more broadly? I mean... Mm. You know, clearly, for non-essential businesses, you know, the high streets being closed has been a complete and utter disaster. You know, if I want to buy a pair of training shoes, um, I can't go to the local store in the local town, but I can, of course, go to Amazon um, and buy them online, and they've been one of the big winners of all of this. But we also know the high street was having its problems before the pandemic. Uh, does, with the opening up... Are people going to flock back to the shops, in your opinion? Are they going back to the malls? Are they going back to the high streets? Or has our taste for buying things online and having them delivered to our homes? And all I see on the roads where I live now are vans. Deliver I don't see cars. I see yeah. delivery vans everywhere. <laughs> uh, you know, is this a fundamental cultural change to, to, to basically buying pretty much everything online? Or do you think we've got a chance of going back to the high street, being busy and somehow surviving? Well, one interesting thing, you know, from what I'm seeing in, in retail, is city centres are, are, are struggling to get back the business. The idea of shop local, people prefer to shop local now. And, you know, all the big chain stores, right down to smaller stores, are finding the stores in the suburbs, in the smaller towns, they're doing better than city, big city centre stores. People mm. are avoiding city centres. Mm. I think in terms of online shopping, I think the pandemic has just sped up where we were already heading towards of buying everything online. 
and you know big stores maybe like John Lewis who's cut who's cut so many jobs and so many sites their shops will become a bit more like a showroom so you'd go into the store to look at the product speak yeah. to somebody and then you'll go home and, and make the purchase online and have it delivered to you so you don't have to you know carry a big piece of uh, electronic equipment around um so so I do see that that shift to, to shopping online and what I don't think is fair is you know the small stores on the high street or all stores on the high street they pay business rates whereas people like Amazon and all the other online guys you know they don't pay business rates like we do because they've got warehouses so they get classed in a different category and they get away um, compared to what you know the average sh shopkeeper is paying so that's one inequality that has to be levelled up. Yes, and perhaps the other one is tax. Uh, now, I know there's been this big global initiative launched by Joe Biden to try and agree a common minimum corporation tax across the world. Uh, but I somehow, I'm not sure it's going to work. And, and isn't this the other resentment that, you know, the private company running its own business is paying its corporation tax? And somehow a lot of these big firms pay almost nothing. Absolutely. And it's not just, you know, big online firms, it's any international business, you know, whether it's uh, Unilever, Procter & Gamble, Starbucks, they're all got, you know, they've all got head offices in the Virgin Islands or Switzerland, and they have many tricks up their sleeve, pay tax advisors a lot of money to get out of paying tax and not paying tax where they make the profit. And that is what is not fair. You know, a lot of these companies pay you know, less tax, uh, you know, than many small businesses just by the way they structure their business and, and how they uh, move things around. Yeah, no, there's still an awful lot to sort out. There really is. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening. Uh, that was Hussein Lalani, businessman and founder of the 99p stores. And, and, and yes, it isn't just about the COVID passport for people working in shops and working in retail and working in business. It is actually about the high streets and whether they can survive. Now, in a moment, a story that surely even the most ardent Remainer or Ramona can't begrudge us. Yes, we're getting rid of EU red tape and it's going to mean cheaper wine. Can't be bad. 50,000 diagnoses completely missed for dementia since the start of lockdown. And that is the tip of the iceberg. A third of a million hospital admissions for cancer and heart disease simply haven't happened. A waiting list now of five million operations. There is no way the National Health Service can ever catch up with all of this. And we're going to, I think, finish up with a situation where... Those that can afford to go privately will, and those that can't will be in the queue. And I just wonder whether maybe what we ought to be doing is to actually encourage people to pay for GP appointments, encourage people to pay for hip replacements, give them tax breaks for doing it, and then, and perhaps only then, can we relieve this massive pressure, this huge backlog that is there on the National Health Service. And yet, whenever the Prime Minister or the government, whenever they talk, about the NHS, they just say, it's fantastic, it's wonderful. Well, look, I think the, the men and women that work for it are. I think the objects and aims of the NHS are absolutely admirable, but we have to have an honest conversation about the problem that we've got. And some reaction from you. Stuart on Twitter says, people using private health care takes pressure off the NHS. 
those who choose to go private should be applauded as they're freeing up appointments for people on NHS waiting lists. Stuart, I absolutely agree with that. And I, think it, and I really do believe if we were to use the tax system, we might find even more people do it. Uh, because, goodness me, we've got to do something. Bob from Leicester says, Great to see that you are broaching the subject of dementia at the moment. Please open up the entire debate of ailments, illnesses that are absorbed by COVID. Well, yes, all we've been talking about is COVID. You know, we talk about COVID, 43 deaths yesterday, 24 deaths yesterday, 8 deaths yesterday. You know, 10,000 people a week, and nearly 11,000 people a week, die in this country of something. We need to have a much bigger, broader debate about health and how we're going to provide it. And David says on email, most NHS staff are doing a great job, but local GPs are hiding. If supermarket checkout staff face the public, why shouldn't GPs? Even a telephone or a video appointment is difficult to get. Well, I think the point really that we're making there is even if you do have a video appointment, it's very difficult to diagnose problems with children. It's perhaps even more difficult to diagnose conditions like dementia. Jeff on email says, we just cannot afford the service that we think we can. Party politics gets in the way of making a fair assessment of what we can afford. Well, uh, look, you know, we want to be able to afford it. Uh, and Nigel Lawson, the former Chancellor, once said that the National Health Service was the nearest thing we have to a state religion in this country. We believe in it, we want it to work, but we have to be honest when it's facing huge problems. And I promise you, folks, it is right now. One more message I'll take. Jake on email says, I think the vaccine passports are making the UK literally like 1984. A licence to get into nightclubs. What next? A licence to make toast in my own toaster. Well, I'm not sure they're going to go that far. But you never know, do you? Because when central government takes power, it loves it. It's very reluctant to give it away. So please keep your thoughts and views on this impending health crisis. At least that's how I see it. Keep them coming in. Also, please send in to Barrage the Farage any questions outside of this subject that you've got for me. It's very easy to do. It's gbviews at gbnews.uk. Now, for years, we were told Brexit was a catastrophe, a total disaster. Everything would be worse. Prices would go up. But we get a really good, happy piece of news overnight. And it's about post-Brexit wine imports. Yes, because of EU red tape, we've had incredible checks that have to be made, acidity tests made on wine. Um, and this was all because, well, I think it was because the European Union, with some big wine producers in it, in particular, of course, Italy and France, the European Union put this in place effectively as a protectionist measure because they wanted. They wanted it to be more difficult for wine to come in from outside the United Kingdom. Now, whilst we do produce wine in this country, and some of it, particularly the sparkling, I think, uh, white, is very, very good. But 99% of the wine that is drunk in the United Kingdom is actually produced overseas. Most of it at the moment comes in from Europe. But I think 
As we start to negotiate our own trade deals, we're going to find that wines coming in from the rest of the world, comparatively, are going to get just that little bit cheaper. So, look, here's a good news story. A good news story for everybody and a good news story about Brexit and maybe a good news story for the wine trade in this country. Well, joining me now is Jasper Corbett, wine connoisseur and owner of Compass Wines Limited. Jasper, good evening. Evening, Nigel. So a piece of, I mean, this is almost, to me, a dream, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is, this is a Farrar's dream, you know, because a piece of EU red tape gets cut. As I understand it, Jasper, these were tests that had to be done on batches of wine to test for acidity, um, and we've now decided that is unnecessary red tape and doesn't need to be done. Is that about the sort of long and short of it? Uh, yes, I, I think... Partly, you've, you've got a very good story out of a, um, uh, something that's not quite there in that I think it was the British government uh, that actually said that we needed to have these tests done in the first place, not the Europeans. Uh, and so um, if, if we had to go ahead and do them, there would have been a cost added uh, for the small independent wine merchants. This would have been a huge uh, burden to bear. And for importers, uh, of course, they would have to have paid for these tests, which were around about £300 uh, per bottle, per wine, per vintage. So every year you've got to go through this process. So it looked like a sort of uh, a rather nasty tale was going to unwind, which was going to add, you know, 10, 15p to a bottle of wine. Uh, and now it's not, which is which is very good news. I must admit, the, the, the red tape that was coming our way was going to look uh, mind-blowingly difficult. We are wine merchants, and we tend to suggest that we're just above estate agents in the intellectual capacity stakes, so <laughs> more red tape is not good news for us. <laughs> I like that. Well, I have to say, working out over the last 25 years whether rules originated in Brussels or in the UK was always very difficult, but it, it being removed, it being removed is clearly very good news. So you're going to give... Now, just promise me one thing, Jasper. This means that your customers are going to get slightly cheaper wine, doesn't it? I'm afraid not. Oh. It means you're not going to get more expensive wine. <laughs> OK. Because the tax, <laughs> the tax isn't coming. <laughs> yeah. OK. And what are you drinking now, Jasper? Tell me. Well, I, I've got a rather cheeky little Sauvignon Blanc from the Loire Valley, which is called Apper Prey, which translates to as good as... Right. And it's made just outside Pui Fume in the Loire Valley. Jolly good. Very good. And tell me, how is the, how is the UK wine trade? Is, I mean, presumably lockdown must have been fantastic for you guys because people at home, uh, sitting in the garden, I guess you've all made a fortune, haven't you? For the independent wine merchants, fellas like me and, uh, and associated uh, elements of it, it's been really very good because, as your earlier contributor said, we've learned to shop locally. People use butchers and, and fishmongers that they've forgotten about. And they're buying nicer wine, uh, more interesting wine. We're a very knowledgeable country when it comes to wine. You can find wine from all over the world here. So it, uh, it's, it's a lovely marketplace to sell into. I think for those in the hospitality sector, it has been a simply dreadful period. Yes. Oh, yes, sure. If you're organising big events, sporting events, disaster. But for you, the local wine merchant, it's been good. Jasper Corbett, thank you very much indeed for coming on and joining us. Well, there we are. So I was hoping our wine might get cheaper, but we're told it's not going to get more expensive. But it's sort of... I guess, I guess that's a glass half full rather than half empty. 
moment. Now it's time for my what the Farage moment, the thing that I see that, that really makes me think, what on earth is going on in the world? And it's TikTok. Now, it isn't just that TikTok generally does drive me bonkers, but it's that criminal traffickers, yes, traffickers that are taking people across the English Channel are now openly, wantonly advertising their wares on TikTok. Um, and here we are. TikTok ads say, we'll get you to Britain for 20,000 quid. Now, that may sound to you like a huge amount of money. Some people pay as little as 3,000 euros, but others are paying very, very big numbers. And once again, we see this story that, you know, a very large, very significant social media company uh, is allowing itself to be used for what is absolute and outright criminality. So I know they've received complaints today, and I trust that TikTok will do something about it. You know, whether it's bullying, whether it's abuse online, whether it's extreme racist comments or whatever it is, we know all of that's happening. We're having an active debate as to how it can be dealt with and including, you know, whether people should um, be able to get away with being anonymous in all that they say. But for TikTok to be actually advertising this criminal trade across the channel is, I think, outrageous. Um, and just to bring people up to speed, yesterday the Home Office told us that 378 people crossed the English Channel. Not quite a new record, but very near to the record of 430. We don't have figures in yet today, although I've seen footage from Dover this morning, uh, you know, suggesting that it's going to be in the hundreds once again. Certainly well over three figures. Uh, and I repeat what I've been saying for some time. I think the cross-channel migrant crisis is going to become the biggest non-Covid story this summer. Um, and I think Priti Patel, who has got away ever since August 2019 with making tough speeches and the Conservative media and the Tory backbenchers saying, isn't she wonderful? Uh, I think Priti Patel is beginning to get onto pretty thin ice, as it's clear that a country that voted to take back control of its borders has completely and hopelessly lost control of its borders. And the other, what the Farage moment, that I simply can't believe, and it's the Olympics. So we woke to the good news this morning that we've managed to win, you know, three gold medals overnight, and that's great. And I don't think Olympic fever really had taken off. I suspect we'd rather OD'd on football and other sports over the course of the last month. That was great news to see we've won, we've won three gold gold medals. Uh, but now to hear that a Sudanese judo player, in fact, two Sudanese judo players have refused their next bout because it's against an Israeli, I would have thought was racism of the most extreme kind. And how dare they take a spot in the Olympics and deny somebody else who would like to have been there. Now, breaking news that I have for you right now. The list of sectors able to avoid quarantine as part of a pilot scheme is being extended and will now include people working in prisons, defence, communication, space, fish, HMRC, and the number of testing sites across England is also set to be expanded. Some 1,200 new sites are being added to the 800 already in operation. More than 600,000 people were pinged by the NHS COVID app in the week up until the 14th of July. Well, thank 
goodness for that piece of breaking news. We are beginning, I think, to get a slight outbreak of common sense. And it's not before time. The idea that people are pinged and sent home to isolate when actually what we should be doing is testing people. And if that means testing, 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 but it keeps the country running and it keeps businesses going, that is just so much better. Slowly but surely, the government's pilot scheme that Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak intended to use for themselves and then U-turned within two hours and 38 minutes, slowly but surely, that scheme is being extended. Thank goodness for that. Now, in a few moments' time, I'm going to be talking pints with somebody who was completely on the opposite side of the Brexit debate to me, but I'm sure we can have a very civil drink together. Yep, my guest in a moment is Sir Vince Cable. Well, in, two, in 2010, we saw the Liberal Democrats in coalition government. The Liberal Party had not been in government for a very, very long time. And one man that was very much at the heart of all of that was my guest tonight on Talking Pints, and that indeed is Sir Vince Cable. Vince, great to see you. Cheers. Cheers to you. And we've... We've known each other a long time. We've done lots of debates together, had lots of conversations. Yeah, it goes back to the referendum party. And... It goes all the way back to the mid-1990s. Right. Um, and I think we've always managed to agree to disagree, but in a reasonably civil... I think that's right. ...manner, which is, yeah. which is good, because, yeah. so, as you know... So much of the polarity in politics has led to name-calling and the demand to cancel people, and all of that is, is pretty awful. But I have to ask you, you're somebody that, unlike most politicians, you actually had a career, you, you, know, you worked in a big company, and, 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 and you then came into politics a bit later, right. perhaps, than some people, which I think is a very good thing. Incidentally, I wish more people did that rather than sort of Oxford PPE and <laughs> straight into yeah. politics. But... You finished up in 2010. Nick Clegg was the leader. Mm -hmm. you, were, you were there, see, very senior position in the party, mm. going into coalition government with David Cameron's Conservatives. Was it a success? It was a successful government. We did a lot of stuff. We got in at a time of major economic crisis, uh, calmed the situation down. Um, we had a stable five-year planning horizon. I mean, I got on with things like industrial strategy over a five-year period. You know, we had long-term thinking, not just reacting day-to-day. -day. Um, set up things like the British Business Bank that have, you know, proved their worth today. So a lot of good things happened. It wasn't great for the Lib Dems. We, well, that was my point. We were hammered at the end of it, but yes. um, as, as a government, it worked well. And that, as you said at the beginning, we didn't necessarily like each other politically, but we've grown up and we, we worked together. And, and, and Nick Clegg, I mean... <sighs> It was the university fees thing, wasn't it, above all, that did the Liberal Democrats damage? I mean, um, because a lot of young people... And I remember when Charlie Kennedy was leader, you know, going to a students' conference, and he was like a sort of hero-type figure. And, and the Liberal Democrats were popular in the universities, you were popular with the students. I mean, I, I could be wrong, but it seems to me that was the biggest mistake that you made. Yeah, I don't know about being a mis mistake, because there was no alternative, given the financial position of the country. But it does a lot of damage. But actually, the... The thing that killed the Lib Dems in the coalition, I don't think was that. Um, a, a month before the 2015 election, we could have perhaps got back with 30 MPs. It would have been, a, you know, not back, but it we yeah. could have lived with it. But what really hammered us was this very brutally effective campaign that Cam uh, Cameron ran, 
which is, you know, either you vote Tory or you get Jeremy, you get the, get the Tories, uh, sorry, you get Labour yeah. and, and the SNP. Yeah. And that really told very heavily. And seats like mine, a lot of people were, you know, alarmed about what they saw the Labour Party representing. Yes. They were frightened of the SNP. Oh, they, they were. For them. Well, I remember. So that's what swung it. It wasn't so much what we did in I, government. I remember those slogans very well, because if you remember at the time, I was leading UKIP. Yeah. And we got 3.9 million votes and a grand total of one seat. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, I kind of remember that election very, very well. Yeah. But, Vince, what interests me is you're still very prolific in terms of your writing. Right. You're still very actively involved in political debate in this country. You are Sir Vince Cable, not surprisingly. And yet what really surprises me is whatever you think about the House of Lords, and by the way, I'm no fan of it, but surely you should have accepted a peerage because you would actually be very much more active in what you can say and do today. Why did you turn it down? Well, I had a choice in 2015. You know, I could have gone into the House of Lords, I lost my seat in Parliament. Yeah. Um, and I said no, um, partly because I wanted to keep fighting and get, win my seat back, which I did with a thumping majority. And I, I felt I owed it to my... Uh, local people and uh, to myself, really, to, to, you know, claw back what I'd lost. And I did, and I'm glad I did it. And I finished up being leader of the party, which yes. is a more productive use of my years than going into the House of Lords. And I've not been offered one since. But, ah, that's the reason. <laughs> but, uh, well, not really, actually. So I'm if not, you were offered one now, you'd take it? I probably wouldn't, but, uh, you know, oh, it's a different I, situation. I'm not so sure. And how was it being party leader? It was tough, actually. I mean, you, you know from your own experience, you spend a lot of time looking behind you. Yeah. Not just looking in front of you at the opposition. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, kind of, you know, it's that phone call in the morning that uh, somebody in the Sheffield branch overnight yeah, exactly. has posted something on Twitter at midnight. Yeah, somebody in headquarters has, has done something. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. But it was a, a very important piece time in British politics, as you know. Hmm. This was the Brexit debate in Parliament. Yes. It overshadowed everything. It was a... I mean, I, I found out a bit of a pain. I mean, I wanted to, you know, get round to talking about economic policy, housing, how dealing with the big tech companies, all that stuff. But nobody was interested, nobody was listening. There was only one issue. Yes. And that totally dominated the two years I had. Yes, it did. And, you know, I put it to you, Vince Cable, that you and, and many like you just never, ever respected the result of the referendum in 2016. Um, I think that's... Oversimplifying it greatly, I accepted the referendum, and I went out and said we, we, we accept it at uh, the time, and that was my view. Um, but then, then what happened was, if you remember Theresa May, Lancaster House, she defined Brexit in a way that you know you would be comfortable with, but a lot of people, I think, weren't. Which was wasn't just leaving the, the political stuff in the, the European Union things you didn't like, you know, the European Army stuff and foreign yeah, yeah. policy. Yeah, which, it was actually, which, which Nick Clegg denied, by the way. It, it was leaving... <laughs> well, I, I, I would <laughs> He too, did, he but, did. But it was also leaving the single market. Uh, the no, 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 Vince, and that I, I'm changed, sorry. that moved the goalposts. I'm sorry, you know, we're in the pub here having a chat, so we're yeah. going to be frank with each other. <clears throat> that is baloney. Well... Every... No, listen to me for a sec. Every single leading figure on both Leave and Remain in the referendum said that a vote to leave was to leave the single market. It, it couldn't have been clearer. 
All of us said it. Yes, it took Boris a bit of time to work it out after his first interview with Ma, but both sides said voting to leave is to leave the single market. Was, and frankly, you guys just concocted this. There was a general issue about freedom of movement within the single market. But the trade relationship, which had been negotiated by Margaret Thatcher and her government, um, served the interests of the British economy very well. And if those two issues could have been separated, and they should have been, um, I don't think people would have had a problem. But we were perfectly clear. Yes, of course we wanted to end unrestricted free movement of people, because since we'd allowed the former communist countries to join, it had got completely... You know, when it was free movement between Germany, the Netherlands, Italy and us, I mean, there was never a debate about this. I mean, mm -hmm. 20 years after we joined the common market, I mean, there was no debate. I was elected in 99 to the European Parliament. I didn't even mention borders or immigration in my manifesto. Mm -hmm. It became an issue when we got the flood. But that was the issue. All the other stuff in the single market, you know, the dealing with regulation, mutual recognition services, all that but, kind of stuff. Vince, we, both, both of the campaigns, both Leave.eu, Vote Leave, were both clear that a vote to leave was for us to go global. And, hey, you know, we've got a trade deal with Australia. I mean... Oh, I, come on, that's, uh, that's chicken feed, isn't it? Well, I, I tell you what I notice. I notice that countries like Switzerland, small countries, have more trade deals around the world than the European Union does. Are you still hankering for us to rejoin? No, I'm not, actually. But what I think will happen, and probably would be sensible, uh, in five, ten years' time, is that we accept that it's, it's, it, it, it's sensible for the UK to have a close set of, regu you know, it's, it's called regulatory convergence, sort of long words. No, we don't want any of that. Well, that we don't would, want any of that. That would be my argument. No, we don't want any of and, that. And dealing with the, the Irish problem, of course, he's still with us, Boris got us in on false pretenses, dealing with the Irish problem by accepting common customs union arrangements. So, so having a Norwegian-type no, deal... We don't want ..would be, no. I think, no, we're, in Vince, the we're interest. out, we're out, we're out. I, I, I think you guys would... Anyway, it, it's academic, because... It is. It's yeah. dumb. Uh, Brexit's now got 70% support in the country, particularly with the vaccine rollout. That made, that made a very big difference to the way Brits viewed the, 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 the European Union. And look, it's not going to be there in 10 years' time, is it? The whole thing's going to fall to bits. No, no. Uh, you still believe... Well, you've been predicting this for decades. <laughs> oh, I have, and it absolutely. Keeps surviving. Well, yeah. well it's, it's just lost... So it. many people, including <clears throat> a lot of pro-European people, kept telling me with the Greece disaster, the thing's going to break out. Well, I tell you what. It's lost the United Kingdom, which in economic terms was, was I, th I think, the equivalent of the 19 smallest countries in, in economic terms within the EU. But another issue that is huge and a country that absolutely is going to be here in 10 years' time and I think wants to be the dominant global power in 10 years' time is China. And China, you know, run by... The Chinese Communist Party, there's no pretense mm. at freedom of speech or democracy in that country at all. And yet, Vince, I'm, and I, I mean, I'm surprised. And, you know, you're somebody who I know through the years we've known each other, you've stood up very hard for human rights causes, for mm. issues of freedom and individual liberty, and you've always believed in that stuff very, very... And that's where we sort of converged, I think, often um, on points of policy. And yet... You seem to be something of an apologist for, no, the, for the Chinese Communist Party. I'm, I'm a believer in realism and recognising that this is the big, probably now the biggest economy in the world. Um, do, we sell our, will do we sell our souls for money? No, we don't sell our souls for money, but we, we have to deal with them, and particularly in the post-Brexit world, right? We're no longer dependent on the European Union. We have to look out, global Britain.
Yeah. And part of global Britain means having a sensible working relationship with the biggest economy in the world, as, as it almost certainly be. And that's the Chinese. <coughs> and we, it, so it's, it's a practical, business-like approach. I mean, when I was in government, I didn't like the Saudi regime often. No. But as part of my job, I was president of the Board of Trade. I had to promote trade with Saudi. I get the economic um, logic of what you're saying. I, mean, I, I get yeah. the pure economic logic of what you're saying. And yet, you know, we did a deal with the Chinese over Hong Kong. Right. And it was to be autonomous until 2047. Uh, they have driven a complete coach and horses through that over the course of the last 18 months, two years. Uh, there are free newspapers being closed down. Sure. There are people being arrested. I mean, are we supposed to just sort of turn the other cheek and pretend this isn't happening? We, we didn't turn the other cheek. I think the British government actually behaved quite commendably and sensibly and that they agreed that people who didn't want to continue living under uh, the People's Republic of China, which is what Hong Kong now is, could come here. I thought that was the right gesture. But where's the condemnation? Where is the public well, condemnation of them breaking a treaty they've signed with us? Where is it? What are we scared of? Well, I'm not sure that's correct. If you go back to the original negotiations, 80, 80s, uh, Margaret Thatcher, yep. uh, Crudder, Percy Craddock and Deng Xiaoping, Deng spells out very clearly what the terms of the handover were. It was, yeah, you keep your separate system till 47 or whatever it is. Mm. You're free to criticise, free to criticise the Communist Party, but there's got to be order, right? And what happened last year, as you know, you know, was that orderly democratic demonstration, the kind of thing you and I would fight for, mm. became extremely violent. You know, people throwing petrol bombs at the police. I mean, that's not freedom of speech. Not uh, when he, no. And then they cracked down, as they predicted they would. Uh, and that's but why is, we are But is closing down a free newspaper? I agree with you. I'd love to... Yeah, of course we have. But, but that is, un unfortunately, the way the, the Chinese system operates. What the Chinese have kept uh, is, you know, the independent judiciary. Uh, Jonathan Sumption, you know, the British yep. Chief Justice, sits yep. on there. Yeah. Uh, legal system. He says to his, to his opinion, neither the Hong Kong administration or the Chinese government are interfering with commercial law, which is what matters to them. No, yeah, no. It is a big step backwards. It's a tragedy, you know, that they had the best, the best of all worlds. And they've lost some of those freedoms. They have. It's tragic. And the Uyghurs, you know, reports of hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs being put through retraining camps. And you don't quite agree with that narrative, do you? Um, I think the use of the word genocide is not right here. Uh, I mean, there is terrible human rights abuse in many countries of minorities. Yep. Uh, and China is one of them, and they, they have abused those minorities, for sure. Um, but calling it genocide, I think, is, you know, hyping the language. OK. So what next? It's not the House of Lords, although if somebody comes and knocks on your door tomorrow, I suspect that it will be. No, no. You still clearly care about a lot of things. You're writing about a lot of things. You're coming on shows like this. Mm. What next for Sir Vince Cable? Um, well, I'm doing what you described. I'm retired, right? I'm enjoying life. He doesn't look like <laughs> it. <laughs> um, I love my wife. We've got a very lovely relationship. I like travelling the country with her, doing things together. Um, I write weekly for newspapers, books. Yes. Uh, I've got a professorship at um, universities. And I'm involved in one or two interesting business ventures, promoting hydrogen and the you know, heavy goods vehicles, this kind of stuff. So, yeah. 
Yeah, for a 78-year-old, I'm still pretty active. I don't think I come into those 50,000 dementia cases. No, you certainly that. don't. No, uh, you do not. So that. I'm well. keeping that at back. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much indeed for coming in. Cheers. Thank you. That was Vince Cable. And finally, it is time for Barrage the Farage, where you throw questions at me, which I have not seen before I read them out, I can absolutely promise you. And Ruben is asking me, do you regret telling Brexiteers to vote for Boris Johnson in the general election? And do you think Brexit is done? How long have we got? Uh, Vince could join me on this one. We could be here for hours. Look, I don't think we have much choice. My big fear, my big fear was that the Liberal Democrats would, in the south and the west of England, pick up two dozen seats plus. Uh, and if the Brexit party was to have stood in those seats, if that got in the way of getting Brexit done, I didn't feel I could justify the nearly 27 years I'd spent in active politics. Was it the right decision? Yes. Is Boris's Brexit deal the right one? No, it's awful for Northern Ireland. It's not much good for our fisheries. But in other areas, we are making uh, progress. On balance, I think I did the right thing. Yes, I do. Mark on email asks, which country do you think will be next to leave the EU? And in what year do you think it will happen, Mark? If I knew the answer to that, I wouldn't be answering you. I'd be down at the nearest bookmakers as we speak. It will either be Italy, because clearly the Euro's been a catastrophe for them, or it'll be Hungary or Poland, who culturally just cannot stay in a club that continues to hector them. We've got a, a cultural divide east-west, an economic divide north-south. That is my view. Keith on Twitter asks, is a beard on a politician a vote winner? Well, it doesn't seem to be, but I don't think we should perhaps as voters be quite that discriminatory. Johnny on Twitter asks, what music are you into? Who's your favourite band or artist? Well, actually, I have to say, I'm a bit of a super tramp fan, but we've all got our problems. And Megan on Twitter asks, what's a realistic solution for the Northern Ireland border in Brexit? You're throwing questions at me uh, that need whole programmes, but I do think, from the start, Barnier weaponised, he weaponised the border in Northern Ireland in the most extraordinary way.